Welcome back to Christ Church. It's good to see everybody. Are you glad to see me? <laughs> um, God is good. Amen? Why don't you say it with me? God is good. Let me hear it a little louder. God is good. Amen to that. Even as we observe the mess that's going around in our world and our culture, we can still say, God is good, right? Even as we're going through a mess in our own lives and we're struggling and stuff that, that, that our families are dealing with, we can still say, God is good. Say it one more time, God is good. You know, the world needs a lot of things. Maybe we could still say, as the old pop song said, what the world needs now, love, sweet love. Hey, some of y'all are old enough to remember that song, aren't you? That was written by a guy named Hal David back in 1965. That's showing how some old some of you are, right? Uh, and Hal David wrote the words... What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just, what? Too little of. Oh, you guys know it. But behind the scenes, he got stuck right there. He couldn't think of the next words to write. For two years, that song just stuck there. Until one day, he was driving to work, and he realized that the song was addressed to God. It was like a prayer. And I bet you never sung that song thinking of it as a prayer. But it is. Because after he realized that... Stop. Don't you love those watches? The rest of the song, you might remember he came up with the line, Lord, we don't need another mountain. And then the rest of it just flowed. Uh, do, do any of you remember who the first person to sing that song was? You get a big prize if you do. Who? Jackie DeShannon. See, Jackie. <laughs> she sang it and got the number seven on the top 100 Billboard chart. Later, Dionne Warwick sang it. And the Supremes, Petulia Clark, Luther Vandross. It's been sung, 220 films have had that song in it, and, and also TV shows. So let's think about, y'all sing it with me, right? Just, just the, the chorus. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for one, but for everyone. I think I messed up the words. But <clears throat> then the next part goes, Lord, we don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. There are oceans and rivers enough to cross. Enough to last till the end of time. What the world needs now is love. Sweet love. I'd say that there is still truth in that prayerful song. Who would disagree that what the world needs now, even how many years later? The world needs love. 
And not just any kind of love, but a godly spiritual love. And yet as we look around the world, we see the corruption and the depravity, we can become cynical. Have you found yourself becoming a little cynical? We can become a little dark in our thinking. We can become angry and want to strike out and argue and fight. As the world attempts to corrupt us and get us to compromise our values, sometimes it succeeds in making us mean and nasty. Sometimes we as Christians can get a little mean and nasty. We compromise the other way. We might not do the dark things the world is doing, but our hearts are darkened nonetheless in our response. Our response far too often is not to love people, but to hate people. And so today we we are concluding this series called The Daniel Dilemma. And the study has really been about how to stand firm in our faith, in a culture of compromise, but in a loving way. And that that sometimes is a very difficult balance. In our text today, Daniel is once again put to the test. Now Daniel, even though he was a good man, Daniel was a great guy, but he was hated by some people. Even though he was a godly man, he tried to do what was right, People despised him. Why? Why would they hate a good man like Daniel? Well, I think it's because Daniel had influence with the king. Every every king he served under, he gained influence. And the other people that wanted to influence the king were jealous of that. They could not force Daniel to compromise his faith, but they could use his faith against him. Now, you may remember, if some of you might not have been here every week, so just a real quick uh, recap. You may remember that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken captive by the Babylonians when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians defeated Israel. They were taken back to Babylon, and there the Babylonians tried to brainwash them, in essence, tried to change them, to remold them into being good Babylonians. They wanted them to fit in and follow Babylonian customs and Babylonian religions. However, these four men stood firm in their faith. They would not compromise. And through several different events, the God they served proved to be sovereign God over all nations. Whether it was saving them from a fiery furnace or revealing his power uh, or uh, giving them an interpretation of a dream, King Nebuchadnezzar would eventually, before his death, acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Last week, we learned that his son, Belshazzar, did not learn the same lessons his father did. He mocked God 
by bringing in golden goblets stolen from the treasury of Israel. And he had all of his people in his party drinking and praising the gods of gold and silver and other gods the Babylonians worshipped. And this angered God so much that he had a visible hand appear in the palace and that hand wrote a message on the wall in full view of the king and all of his guests. Now, this scared the king to no end. The Bible says that he was trembling, he was shaking, he was scared to death. He wanted to know what it meant, and none of his wise men could tell him. But God gave Daniel the answer. The message was that the king's days were numbered. That God had weighed him and he had been found wanting and his kingdom would now be divided among the Medes and the Persians and that very night Belshazzar was assassinated and a new king took the throne and the new king was Darius, a Mede. And in Daniel 6, we see the moment that Darius would also recognize who the God of heaven truly is. The bigger picture is a story of a friendship between two people and how that friendship influenced one of them to actually come to faith. And so the big idea for today is that if we can maintain our faith and integrity in a loving way, we too can influence those around us. Even as the culture is trying to get us to compromise, we need to hold on to our faith and not give in, but do it in a kind, gentle, loving way. We pick up the narrative in Daniel 6, beginning in verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, once again, we see God blessing Daniel by making him favorable to the king. Daniel was about to be appointed to the highest position of anyone else in the kingdom next to the king because he proved to be a fine man, trustworthy, and exceptional in his treatment of government affairs. And if you thought this might create some jealous rivalries, well, you would be correct because in the next verses, we read this. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent 
Boy, wouldn't it be great if everybody could say that, right? That somebody's trying to find something on us and they can't find nothing on us except for the fact that we are faithful to God. Wouldn't that be awesome? Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So here's that interesting comment about Daniel. His faith was well known amongst all the people. I mean, they all realized that he would not compromise his faith. And so their plan was to use this knowledge as a tactic to ruin him. They devised a scheme that they knew would put Daniel in a difficult position and would sort of force the king to get rid of Daniel. So here's the scheme, verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went to, as a group to the king, and they said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. And now your majesty issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And so King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, as we're reading that, we can all read between the lines, right? They know Daniel is not going to do this. They know he's not going to pray to the king. He's going to keep praying to God. They also know that the king is a narcissist. And the idea of everybody worshiping him and praying to him would be very attractive. So you see how they're manipulating the king. And they duped the king into signing what they thought was Daniel's death warrant. Even though he liked Daniel, even though he respected Daniel, once the decree was signed, he could not change it. Now, you may notice that they lied to the king right off the bat. They, you remember what they said? They said, all the administrators have gotten together and we all agree that you should do this. That's a false statement, isn't it? Because Daniel didn't agree. So how would Daniel react when he got news of this royal decree? I think this is my favorite part, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decrees had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Isn't that amazing? I love how Daniel was just unfazed by this law. He didn't go out and politic against it. He just went about his life as he always did. And as these enemies knew he would. He would pray three times a day with his windows open 
where people could see him. Now, he didn't do it so that they could see him, but they could see him. And he was giving thanks to God just as he had always done. And this, of course, is what his enemies knew would happen. They knew he would not compromise and that he would not change. And they knew that they had him in a corner. And so they went to the king and ratted him out. They told the king that Daniel didn't care about the king's decrees or his laws. He was still praying three times a day to his own God. And the next verse gives us insight into the relationship that King Darius had with Daniel. Verse 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. Now, let me just stop right here. If you remember back to King Nebuchadnezzar, when he heard that these guys weren't bowing down to his image, he was angry. He wanted to, he wanted to make them suffer. But here, King Darius, greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. So you see why I believe that King Darius actually deeply cared about Daniel. He trusted him. He probably also realized at that point that these people had duped him. They had used him. But try as he might, there was nothing he could do. We go back to verse 15. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. The king knew his hands were tied. The only hope Daniel had was that God would save him. And the king realized this. In verse 16, we read, So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. At this point, no man can save Daniel. Don't you get the sense that the king actually loved Daniel? He cared about him. But he had to obey the law. Yes, even the king had to follow the law. And so, again, only God could save him. And verse 18 through 20, we get a glimpse of how the king felt at that moment. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. Now, this was not a normal pattern for a, a, a king in that day. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, 
Has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Again, Darius wasn't like previous kings. He had come to know Daniel as a man of faith and he believed God could possibly rescue him. And you get the sense of urgency. An uncaring king would not stay up all night without eating or being entertained. He really cared about Daniel. He must have been so relieved when he heard the reply. Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed. And he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At that point, we're thinking happy ending. But there's more to the story. It wouldn't be a happy ending for everyone. Those who had accused Daniel and had manipulated the king were themselves thrown into the lion's den along with their families, and that's a horrible part, and they were all killed. And Darius made a new decree in verse 26. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Once again, God came through in a big way for Daniel. Daniel's faithfulness and love for God had Uh, made a hard situation bearable. But I want you to look at this story in the light of King Darius's relationship with Daniel. Obviously, the king really cared about Daniel, and Daniel cared about the king. I would call it more of a friendship than a king and a servant. And as we observe the relationship, we see the importance of maintaining our faith in a loving way, even as the culture tries to throw us into the lion's den. And what we see is two things, that connections have to occur before corrections can occur. And the secret of influence is relationship. First of all, let's think about how we need to connect before we correct. Sometimes, and I've seen some People show up on campus at ECU and they'll stand out and they'll be shouting stuff and yelling at students as they go by. They're trying to correct all the sins of the students without having any connection to the students. Did you observe in our story how there was a connection between King Darius and Daniel? As soon as the king realized he put Daniel in jeopardy, He became anxious and afraid. And that reveals a true connection between the two. How did the connection form? 
Well, as we look back over Daniel's life in Babylon, we see that over and over again, every time there was a problem, Daniel handled himself with grace and dignity. He did not lash out at people. He did not go behind the scenes and stir up trouble for his political opponents. He would not lower himself to their level. Some might say he had a right to. Some might say he was weak because he didn't do that. But the truth is, he simply trusted God. And he realized that the men he served were merely men. These kings might have a God complex because all people wanted to kiss their feet. But he spoke truth to them. And he really cared about them. Remember how he tried to get King Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself before God? And in this narrative, he doesn't speak ill of the king. Even as they're throwing him to the lion's den, he's not yelling at the king, how could you do this to me? He knew what had happened. Now, I wonder if we handled ourselves a little more like Daniel could we help more people? Could we help people more? If we didn't have an us-against-them attitude, could we connect with people a little better? It is true that we are not to love the world or the things in the world. However, the Bible also says that God so loved the what? The world that he gave his one and only son as a sacrifice for it. So how do we make sense of what might seem like a contradiction? Well, first of all, we are not to love the sinful and evil things in the world. We are not to be duped by our culture and be swayed into living as the rest of the culture lives. Those things that mock God that draw people into sin, that create darkness and destruction in people's lives, these lifestyles are not to be on our agenda. However, are we supposed to love the people of the world? Yes. Most people, even people who are influenced by the world, don't even understand their situation. They're being duped just like King Darius was duped. You see, friends, people won't listen to us until they know that we care about them, until we treat them with love. And, you know, if, if somebody looks at me as an enemy, they're not going to listen to what I have to say to them. I've never seen a debate or an argument end where one person says, oh, you know what, you're right. I'm just going to start following Jesus. That's not what happens. I did read this story about a woman, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She was, at the age of 36, she was a tenured professor at the Center for Women's Study at Syracuse University. Rosaria and her lesbian partner were members of a Unitarian Universalist church where Rosaria was the coordinator of what is called the Welcoming Committee 
the gay and lesbian advocacy group. And up to that point in her life, Rosaria said that the only Christians she knew were intellectually impaired. <laughs> she says they were the kind of people who sent me hate mail or people who carried signs at gay pride marches that read, God hates fags. But her negative image of Christians would radically change when she met a local pastor named Ken and his wife, Floyd. Eventually, their friendship led to her conversion to Christ. But here's how Rosaria described the first encounter with these genuine and authentic Christians. She writes, I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-choice bumper sticker on my car. I remember awkwardly greeting my host at the door and pulling out my bag with two gifts, a bottle of good red wine and a box of strong tea. I wanted to get to know these people, but not at the expense of compromising my moral standards. My lesbian identity and culture and its values mattered a lot to me. I came to my culture and its values through life experience, but also through much research and deep thinking. I liked Ken and Floyd immediately because they seemed sensitive to that. And during our meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. I believed at this time that God was dead and that if he ever was alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. I believe that religion was, as Marx wrote, <clears throat> the opiate of the masses. But Ken's God seemed alive. Three-dimensional and wise, if firm. And Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. Ken and Floyd did something at the mill that has a long Christian history. They invited a stranger in. Not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. We didn't debate worldview. They were willing to walk the long journey to me, in Christian compassion. And during our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script as I had come to know it, uh, when the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. And since this beginning... The journey on which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure. And this simple meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of this journey. Before I ever stepped foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd and on and off studying scripture. And my heart knew at the time that I couldn't or Ken knew that I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. It does no good for me as a Christian to shout at my non-Christian neighbors about their sin. They don't even recognize their sin. And they don't know me. And I don't really know them. It seems a better way to help them is to get to know them. Not to do what they're doing, but to get to know them. 
and not to condone uh, what they're doing, and, but also not to condemn them, but to have the same attitude as Christ. When confronted by a woman caught in adultery, he didn't take the opportunity to bash her, to condemn her. Instead, he showed love and acceptance to her. Yes, he said, go home and sin no more. But he said, neither do I condemn you. Remember, she was a woman who would have understood that. And what I'm saying is he didn't attack her, he loved her. And before correcting her, leading her to a better life, he connected with her. Yes, friends, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It needs the love of Jesus. Amen? So, the secret of influence. Daniel became an influential person in the Babylonian Empire, first of all, by loving God more than he loved himself. He loved God more uh, than anything. He was willing to die to remain faithful to God. And that kind of faithfulness will have a powerful effect upon those who observe it. When you see someone who's willing to die for their faith, doesn't it impress you? Don't you think in your mind, boy, I wish I had that kind of faith? When I sit down with my Indian uh, pastors over in India who have been persecuted for their faith, I am humbled. They look at American pastors and think, oh, you're such godly men. We're so glad you're here. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, I, you are the godly men. Uh, these men are special. What, what would I do in that situation? Would I be faithful in that environment? Would any of us refuse to compromise when the world comes at us in that way? Daniel certainly did refuse. Even though he was thrown into lion's den, he never faltered. We may have to face our own lion's dens. The rejection of friends, the loss of a job, being banned from Facebook, you know, getting in Facebook jail, or dropped by supposed friends on Facebook. The whole culture seemingly calling us dumb for believing in God and creation. But loving God above all is the key to being true to Him. He wasn't, uh, and, and wasn't the greatest commandment exactly that? When somebody asked Jesus about what the greatest commandment was, He said in Matthew 22, 37 through 38, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But you know, interestingly, loving God is not enough if we want to influence our culture. Jesus would go on to say, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If we love God, Scripture tells us we must love people. We can go to church every week. We can read our Bible. We can memorize the whole thing. We can pray every single day, and if we don't have love, all that other stuff doesn't mean anything. Our love for God is revealed in the way we love people. And when we love people, we open the door for them to love God too. If you want to influence people, you first must love them. They will not want to hear what you have to say unless they know that you genuinely care about them. 
And that is the secret of influence. Daniel influenced those kings because he had an unfailing love for God and that love translated into loving them. Loving the king that held them captive in a sense. Even though by human standards they should have been enemies, Daniel genuinely cared about them. And so instead of taking shots at people whom we disagree with, begin to pray for them. Genuinely pray for them. Pray their hearts might be changed. And God, if there is some way for me to be used toward that purpose, Father, use me to reach out, to have an influence. And this brings us to this final question. How then shall we live? As we conclude today and we conclude this series, we think back through the series and the things that we have learned from Daniel's example. And and just a quick list of things. Daniel's, think of Daniel's choices. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's choices. Uh, Know your God-given identity. You are a child of God. You don't belong to the world when you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Settle your core values. Know who you are. Know what you believe. Be ready to stand your ground in the tests of life. Worship God and God alone. Refuse to worship the idols of the world. Give your life fully to Jesus Christ. Recognize the pride of your life and be humble. Put your feelings in their proper place. Don't base your core values on feelings. Give God full control of your life. Understand the brevity of life. Focus on your priorities while you have life. Heed the warning signs. You know, God gives you the handwriting on the wall. Pay attention. Learn how to connect before you correct. And let God change us into his likeness. If we're going to succeed in standing firm in our faith, in a culture of compromise, friends, we need to pray. We need to be praying hard. I hope that every one of you have daily prayer time with God. Pray the Father will draw people to himself. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Pray that God will bind the spirit that blinds the minds of people in the world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we read the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Pray that people would come into relationship with God. In Romans 8, 15, we read, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit has you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. God wants to be our Father, and He wants to be their Father. Pray that as believers, we would have opportunities for positive relationships with those who are lost, 
so we might influence them. As Matthew 9, 38 tells us, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That doesn't mean just preachers. That's all of us going out and, and reaching people that need him. And pray that God's wisdom might be revealed to those who are spiritually blind. In Ephesians uh, 1, 17, we read, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Friends, if we are to successfully navigate the pressures of the culture, we must keep our standards high and our grace deep. Accept people without approving of their behavior. Never argue with people. Lead people to truth by identifying with their struggle. Understanding, yes, they're sinners and they're blinded by the spirit of this world. Paint the picture of what it looks like to come home to God. The picture that God gave us in Luke 15. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. This is our God. This is what he wants to do. Those folks that are messed up in this world, who are so caught up in this world, who don't even realize what's going on, our Father wants to bring them home to him. Be the Daniel your family and neighbors need. If we can maintain our faith and integrity as Daniel did in a loving way, we too can influence those around us. It's not about winning an argument. It's about winning a soul. And remember what the world needs now is love, sweet love, the love of God. Father, rightly so, David wrote that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And in our culture, there are plenty of fools. And it seems at times like all have turned away from you and no one does good. Daniel shows us that we can make better choices even in the face of threats from our culture. And Father, if we can understand that, you are our refuge. We're not in that lion's den alone. We're not in that fiery furnace all by ourselves. You are with us. And whatever happens, your will is the best thing for us. So, Father, help us to follow Daniel's example. Help us to love you and love people enough to stand firm in our faith. May we influence others to seek you out. You are present in the company of the righteous. Our salvation comes from you. And so we praise you, Father, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.